Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida. This week, I'm joined by my partner in cybercrime, Dayton Williams, a graduate student at Brown University. Hello, my name is Dayton Williams, and I am this podcast's resident policy wonk. So, Jacob, do you have a door on your bathroom? I do actually have a door in my bathroom. You don't? Well, I have nothing to hide, so I don't really need a door. I just like to air my air who I am so everyone in the house can know what I'm about. You know what I mean? Um, we all have the same stuff, you know? So there's no reason to have privacy like a bathroom door. Don't you agree? Yes, podcast is over. Thank you for joining us. In all seriousness, this week we are talking about privacy. First thing we want to do here is we want to define privacy. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to understand privacy, socially, politically, legally. It's both intangible and personal. Exactly, Jacob. Uh, Alan Weston, a law professor at Columbia University, said that privacy is control of information about you. It's your choice to reveal or conceal. So if you think about that bathroom door, you should be able to put up a door if you feel like it, if you're not as free-spirited as I am. And even if we do have all the same stuff, in a greater sense, it's important. It's important to have privacy, because according to Alan Weston, it's important for the construction of a democratic society, because it offers personal autonomy, emotional release, and protected communication so you can dissent. This isn't just a uh, basic definition. I mean, legally, there are structures that have uh, tried to narrow down what privacy is, aside from just philosophically. Right to privacy is a common law right in tort, uh, which means that you can sue someone over an invasion of privacy. In a traditional sense, you can think of this as suing somebody as being a peeping Tom. But how do you put a price on privacy? Intangible injuries can certainly be recognized in court, but there is no direct mention of the word privacy in the Constitution. It's sort of a melange of the Fourth Amendment protecting unwarranted seizures, the First Amendment's protection of freedom of assembly and speech, and the Fourteenth Amendment's for the freedom of due process. Europe, on the other hand, sees privacy differently, having it explicitly laid out in the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. For Europeans, it's about the right to protect and control your information. Yeah, but really, privacy, what is, why does it even matter? Well, recent public revelations and corporate practices have shown that if you use the Internet the laws governing privacy are a bit more at risk than they would be otherwise. The technology that can monitor and record our activities online is much greater in scale and sophisticated than a peeping Tom, like Jacob suggested. The fast technological change of the web has outpaced the political and social scene we find ourselves in. Presently, we're in a critical place where massive corporations, sprawling state-sponsored surveillance systems, and privacy advocates and citizens are all pushing the limits of what privacy means and how it affects us online. Let's now apply this to recent headlines. Just last week, the Department of Homeland Security announced that new policies will allow border agents to search the electronic devices of people entering and leaving the United States. This search permits agents to force you to divulge your passcode, and it's supposedly limited only to information that can be accessed on your phone. Wow, that's wild, Jacob. What do you think about that? Um, well, it's certainly a break with precedent. Normally, you would never be forced to divulge your passcode. Uh, if you used biometrics, such as a fingerprint, you, would be, you, would, you could be compelled to actually open your phone. But generally, the contents of your mind are not something that could be forced, such as a four-digit passcode, to a phone. Right. And imagine also like what the TSA would have to do. They have to be trained in this. 
They have to imagine how it would affect wait times and processing, especially across border agencies. Um, it's really interesting, and it's I really like to see more information on this down the line. It certainly raises a lot of questions that are becoming increasingly more relevant about what we actually have as a right to privacy, especially when it is not something that is codified. Right, exactly. Like, how do you force someone to put in a password, or how do you tell them to get inside their head? You know, I personally, I've used things as passwords that I wouldn't want to tell a border agent. I don't know about you. I'm not going to say any of my passwords, but... Yeah, of course. Some people use the same password for multiple devices, and giving them a password to your phone could, in theory, be giving them a password to your email to, if you're very bad with passwords, maybe even your bank account. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily something you want them to just have access to. And it also raises questions about the person, as you were saying, you know, who is accessing the phone itself, the TSA agent, and uh, what are they going to do with that other information or any other things that they see during the seizure of your phone? I mean, it, it raises a lot of questions about the people you're hiring as well. It definitely complicates the issue. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, that's why I just don't use passwords. <laughs> the solution to all of your privacy problems. I don't use doors and I don't use passwords. Your house must be very interesting, Dayton. Oh, yeah, definitely. To discuss this further, we're going to turn to our guest this week, Michael Spector, to help discuss this issue. Hi, I'm Mike Spector. I'm a PhD student at MIT. Uh, I study computer security and in general and cryptography in particular. Uh, Mike, do you happen to have any particular uh, focus within those domains? I mean, do you focus on privacy or is it just an interest of yours? Well, so I began my career as a, you know, focusing on system security issues, uh, mainly dealing with uh, malware versus engineering and uh, operating system security. Um, uh, recently, I've moved more toward uh, crypto, new interesting cryptographic transparency mechanisms. The first question I had for you was, you know, we've already in this podcast defined what cybersecurity is, uh, but, you know, we're now moving into privacy, but there's kind of a difficulty with people's understanding of privacy. What is, what is really the difference between privacy and security? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the two of them are very similar in that they represent, you know, computer security and privacy represent a set of goals or policies uh, and a set of technical capabilities to achieve those goals. Um, I think security, honestly, is, is a lot more straightforward, right? Um, academically, you know, you create a threat, something called a threat model. Uh, you define a set of goals, our assumptions, uh, you know, who our attacker is, what his or her powers are, the things that they can do, and design a system around that. Um, every vulnerability you see, arguably, is a violation of those assumptions or those understandings of the attacker's you know, powers. Um, privacy to me is, is, is a whole heck of a lot squishier, right? Um, it has more to do with what information a user expects to be available um, and who those uh, who has access to those, that, that set of information. It's not always clear what that expectation is, and this is always going to be much more personal to the user or sets of users or types of users. For example, does, does your grandmother really understand that her email is, re is readable by her email provider? Um, you know... Do people really understand that Google searches are logged by Google? Do they know or care about what information is being leaked to your ISP? For instance, like your DNS lookups. Um, I think, you know, to some extent, actually, two, the two of them, you know, security and privacy are related. I would say that a good security model, um, that is systems that have a good threat model, is necessary but not sufficient for privacy. That's pretty interesting. One of the things I wanted to touch on, uh, specifically with this uh, recent news with uh, the new change in DHS policy was the idea of, you know, the relationship between privacy and security when security is supposed to usurp privacy in this particular situation with regards to being able to search people's phones at the borders. 
before we get really into that topic, though, I, I had a I had a question about you know just in general you've you've you're saying people aren't really sure what kind of information that they're leaking. What sort of personal information do people really keep on their phones, and what don't they realize is being stored? Things that they might not like be overtly uh, you know signing into, kind of a deal. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think you keep pretty much everything about your life uh, is stored somewhere on your device. Um, think of all the apps you have installed on your phone. You know, every piece of information those apps have ever accessed. All of your contacts, your friends, your connections, your work buddies, what sorts of medical issues you might have, uh, your browsing history, um, what you're interested in, your, purchase, your purchasing history. It's all probably there. Um, you know, there's some things on there that you might not expect. Um, for instance, your pictures likely have additional metadata, this, this data about data attached to them, including what camera a particular photo was taken from, you know, the location of where the photo was taken and, and when. Um, that's all stored as part of the photo. Um, it gets even more weird when you start thinking about what sort of data can be gleaned, not from whatever that is on the phone itself, but what you can actually infer from that information. Um, for instance, one might be able to, to guess how healthy you are from your location data. You know, do you move around a lot? Um, your sexual preference, your age or likelihood to want to get married. Um, you know, machine learning models have gotten really good at inferring these sorts of things in actually rather quick, creepy ways. Yeah, I, I'd imagine. I, I like the, your choice of words there when you specifically said information stored on the device. With the DHS policy, that's like the exact wording they use. You know that they're allowed to access information stored on the device that is accessible through software on the device. Um, I mean, you've already kind of pointed out like what this kind of information could be and what we're storing about ourselves that we don't even know. Um, but I mean, it, as you're saying, you know, it's it can lead to so much more, even stuff that's you know not overtly stored on your device. And I, I think that's definitely not something people realize. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I really don't like that uh, that restriction, right? The just information stored on your device. It sounds somewhat, you know, reassuring, like, oh, they aren't going to go onto my Facebook account and, you know, change my status to, to something horrible. Um, but if you think about it, right, your Facebook app is likely storing, you know, an access token to these remote websites, meaning that a forensic image might allow the access for access to those sites later. Um, you know, and uh, additionally, right, it might be the case that uh, your Facebook app has cached all of this data on your device, right? For instance, like Facebook is definitely keeping uh, a ton of information on your phone uh, just as a speed up, right? And you want this to happen. Your old chat messages are likely stored on device. Imagine what, how long it would take to, you know, send a, a text message if every time you wanted to do a text message, you had to go to some server and download every text message you've ever sent. That would be horrible. Um, so yeah, the apps naturally sort of do this, this caching mechanism. So what, it, what does it even mean when you say remote you know, data? That just means they're not getting the most recent copy at most. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of really unclear what information DHS is trying to get at with these searches. And lawmakers should really, in my opinion, should really be examining what these guys really need to keep people safe. I think that's fair. Um, not to jump back a little bit, but um, you, were, you were trying to illustrate kind of like this fear of like these machine I don't want to say fear necessarily but you're just saying like the uh the strength of like machine learning algorithms in terms of like making these assumptions about you um that you know from metadata um that you might not other realize that you are like you know uh leaking out do you have a particular example of that 
because I when I when I hear it, I think about the uh, the case of the one woman, you know, who was uh, pregnant. You know, yeah, her her mother was uh, her her father found out that she was pregnant. His daughter was pregnant from, uh, yeah, I think it was like some department store. There's like Target or something like that, uh, selling sending them ads. And the guy got got miffed about it and then found out accidentally that his daughter uh, had to apologize. He found out his daughter had been buying things that implied that she was uh, that, that she was pregnant. Um, yeah, I mean, things, things get sort of creepy, right? Uh, the amount of information they can, they can, someone can glean, uh, you know, given your, your trends, it turns out humans are relatively predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, this isn't something I prepared for you and I apologize for that, but it's just a question I'd like to ask you, uh, just cause it's kind of relevant to what we're saying. Basically, you know, there, there, we have this DHS policy here about like what data they can and can't access, um, you know, as limited as that actually seems, that limitation that they've placed on them, as you've just discussed. How do you feel about like, you know, the like corporations and, you know, non-government entities and their um, basic ability to collect data? Is it more restricted? Is it, do they have more, do they have stricter guidelines? Uh, what's, what's the interplay between them and, and even the public sector as well? What's really interesting to me is the fact that, you know, as, as in the U.S., we tend to not trust the government, which is fair. Um, what is really interesting to me is the, is the fact that uh, we do, however, trust companies with all sorts of information that we would never trust the government with. Uh, for instance, if you imagine all of the information Google has on you um, versus what all the information, say, you know, the U.S. government has on you, they are actually restricted from having like anything close to what Google has on you, um, or what even you know the use case of what of what Google can can exercise on you. If you imagine all of the information that Google has, um, or any app developer has on you, your location at all times, uh, what things you're interested in at all times, uh, what movies you watched recently. It would be incredibly creepy to you if the government had that, but weirdly, we're sort of okay with with Google and Facebook and uh, Netflix knowing all this stuff about you, um, and it's it's kind of unclear why. Um, I I haven't been able to understand that personally, but um, it's sort of just what we've expected, especially if they give us free stuff mm-hmm. in exchange. Um, there's the old adage, you know, if you aren't buying something, you're probably the product. Um, and I think that's definitely true. Going back to the topic of this DHS phone policy. So the, the guidance here allows officers to request travelers passcodes and to detain the device that is encrypted or inaccessible for further review. This is kind of like a break with the usual protection under the fourth amendment, which would like keep your passcode protected as like a contents of your mind, kind of a deal. Do you have any idea why this is now becoming permissible? And is it something that's probably going to be extended to just regular everyday uh, law enforcement in the U.S., do you think? Yeah, so so full disclaimer, I, I'm definitely not a lawyer, uh, but I will say what a lawyer has told me, and that's things get weird at borders, um, and normal protections you get as a citizen uh, really don't necessarily apply. Even if you were in borders, right, it's, it's still unclear what protections exist. Um, for instance, if you were to compel a fingerprint, right, if, if I were to say that you must give me your fingerprint so you can unlock the device, it's actually been that's actually been shown to be non-privileged. Uh, something like a like a passcode seems to be, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, seems to be protected. But uh, there was a recent case, uh, 
in Minnesota called Minnesota v. Diamond, where they found that the Fifth Impe- uh, Amendment didn't protect you. What's more interesting is that if you follow that logic, that means that you can tell them, uh, you can give them your fingerprint, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to tell them which finger unlocks the device, which is kind of an interesting little foible there. But yeah, it's it's really unclear what the what protections even exist in in inside of the the central United States. Hmm. That's actually pretty interesting. I, I was on a, I was not aware of that case. That's pretty cool. Yeah, check it out. I will definitely. Well, I mean, we've kind of we've kind of painted this uh, fairly morbid picture of things. You know, it's I understand. You know, you it's it's kind of an uncertain territory. The rules are not super well defined, and I think it's just important to shed light on you know that privacy isn't really like something that's certain in any way in the U.S. But uh, I wanted I wanted to ask a question between like this corporate and state sponsored data collection. Is it possible to have privacy in this day and age? And do you think it's something that we'll have in say like fifteen years down the line? Today, it really depends on what sort of privacy you're talking about and when. Um, I don't think it's possible right now to access things as a normal user, to do most things normally and naturally without that access being somehow tracked or analyzed. That's partially because of the incentive structure of how technology has evolved. um, And that's partially just because of the technical and security uh, aspect of this. There do exist anonymity networks like Tor, right? Um, But Tor is sort of difficult to use for an average user and has some interesting foibles to worry about. For instance, the fact that you're using an anonymity network is not private. This is something that people generally don't think about. Um, It's in fact very likely that anyone who's watching the network can tell that you're using Tor. So if I'm an evil dictator or something and I own your ISP and I'm watching you, the first thing that I'll do is I'll track down everyone using Tor and stomp on them. Something like herd immunity here is useful, but it doesn't really exist yet. Um, this isn't to say that Tor and anonymity networks are bad, but I think it's just you know, useful to discuss their security and privacy guarantees. Um, I don't know if I if I want to make predictions about uh, the future. You That's know, fair. Fifteen years out. That's very fair. Um, <laughs> but I will say that there are a few things that need to happen um, in order to improve the situation that I think need to happen. Um, the first. Uh, is that the incentive structure here really does need to change. Um, If advertisers were no longer incentivized for violating your privacy or if users became more savvy about the use of personal data or, you know, the the use of inferred data and its potential harms, um, and if some sort of regulation occurs to stymie, you know, the use of some of these abuses, uh, we'll likely be far better off. the second thing that might impact the, is, is the creation of new technologies. Imagine if uh, an advertising network could infer what ads to send you based on data they've collected on you, but that data is fully encrypted to the point where the ad network can't read it. Um, wouldn't that be amazing, right? So they, they can still make money, but and the incentive structure might even still be intact, but they don't actually get to see any of that so so the harm there is much much uh less likely to occur mm-hmm. right um technologies to do these sorts of things you know in this case fancy cryptographic tools like multi-party computation and homomorphic encryption uh could allow google to do that in the future um that coupled with good incentives right this this could make a much more private and secure world interesting just as a final note, I understand you don't want to make a, it's hard to make predictions on the future. What would you say the trend is at all 
right now about privacy? Do you think that we're leaning towards uh, greater privacy enforcement, or we are we going towards a future where that we're going to have even less privacy than we had before? I think it's hard for us to have less. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, uh, well, uh, that's uh, at least a brightening thought, I guess. Can't go. Uh, yeah, less from I'm here. sorry to be so dark about it, but yeah, I, I don't think. I think that we're sort of at the the nadir for privacy in this country, and I think that we're going to to evolve in a direction. I think as users become more aware of what's going on, as uh, people start to get a little bit more nervous about perceived potential harms, um, as regulators become you know more savvy about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see an evolution, and I, I, I'm kind of excited to see how that happens. And I, I'm a little nervous about it because I want, you know, as a as a technologist, you want technology to continue sort of unfettered, but at the same time, you want uh, you want protections to 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 exist. So it's it's going to be interesting, sort of watching that middle ground occur. I do want to say one thing. Sure. Uh, and feel free to use it or not. Uh, going back to like the border crossing example. Um, I don't have a good technical solution for that. Um, and I don't think anybody really does, right? So in particular, you know, imagine a situation where you have your personal cell phone and you're trying to cross a border and there's an overzealous border guard that uh, is going to flog you until you hand over a passcode or something like that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, hopefully this is helpful. As we have come to find... Privacy is something more than just what you put directly into your computer. Information about you can be inferred merely by data collection of your daily routine. This data about data, or metadata, such as where your phone frequently is day to day, creates a sort of profile of yourself that you might not be aware even exists. Our identities have become inseparably linked to our technology, such that it's hard to argue that a phone is not an extension of oneself. While we may not be cyborgs in the traditional sci-fi depiction, the line between human and technology is continuously being blurred. However, the technical aspect of privacy is not the sole component. As we have seen, it also rests on policy decisions, which protect and establish one's rights with regards to privacy. You may have an encrypted, password-protected phone, but if your right to conceal that password is not protected, is your phone even secure? The debate between the interplay of security and politics has come to dominate modern political discourse since the Patriot Act. Our willingness to sell ourselves, as it were, to large tech giants like Facebook or Google has sparked controversy about our rights to privacy from non-governmental entities. The privacy debate is likely to be one that will continue to evolve as people become more acutely aware of what is and what is not private. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorps program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.